And if you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Galatians. And we will be in the third chapter and looking at verses 10 through 14 today. As you're turning there, I'm actually going to turn to a different book of Scripture and read something that Paul wrote later in his life to the Corinthians. And the church at Corinth was filled with divisions and strife. It was filled with these factions in the church, factions over wealth, over what leaders they were going to follow, over discipline, over gifts, over the Lord's Supper, even something as trivial and unimportant, we might think, as meat. Certain times in certain places in the ancient world, you could go and find meat for sale at idol markets. They would have been meat that were used in these idol worship practices, and then they would be sold to people. And certain Christians in Corinth, knowing that there was only one true and living God, would go to those idols, and they would take the meat from them. They would purchase that, and then they would eat it. Other Christians who had been brought up in that idol worship couldn't possibly eat that without thinking that they were participating in the worship to idols. And this was causing problems and divisions within the church. And so Paul writes in the 8th chapter, beginning in verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol has real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in the heaven or in the earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. Now, pause there for a second. When he says not all possess this knowledge, it doesn't mean that all Christians don't have this knowledge, but that that knowledge isn't so deep-seated in them that they can overcome years and years and years of practice. So he goes on to say, after saying not all possess this knowledge, he, he makes mention basically of what that knowledge is, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do eat it, no better off if we don't. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So there were people in Corinth who had to abstain from the eating of this meat because they thought that eating it in any way, shape, or form was going to be participation in idol worship. And their conscience, although they were told there is only one God, their, their conscience was so weak in the faith yet that they had to abstain from it. The strong, meanwhile, could partake of that meat, but they had to be careful that they didn't trample over the rights of those who are weak and lead them into sin. So Paul is trying to say that the strong are right here. The strong are correct in that they don't need to eat, worry about this meat being offered to idol. They can eat it freely. But while he is saying the strong are correct, he's also caring and caring for the weaker brother, trying to make sure that their needs are being met too, that their conscience aren't being trampled over, that brotherly love rules over everything. This is a problem of conscience. In other words, Paul is doing all he can to make sure that some feel more at ease and secure in their faith. The question that we have then when we come to the book of Galatians is why isn't circumcision treated like that? 
frankly, the two situations are really similar. There are people who are stronger in the faith, who think that they can eat meat in one hand, and on the other hand, who think, I don't need circumcision. I know that I have received the Spirit. I know that being justified in Christ is enough to include me in the people of God, and I am strong in the faith, and I don't need that. But there are others who are weaker, who don't think that just believing and receiving the Spirit are enough, and they they want to turn to these age-old practices where they could be circumcised and have a guarantee, have more assurance of their faith that they were actually in the people of God. Again, the issue is to make them feel more at ease and secure in their faith. This is what Paul means when he calls the people who come their agitators. They're agitating their faith. They're making them feel uneasy because they're not circumcised. So if they accept circumcision, isn't it just a matter of conscience? Isn't it just a matter of strengthening faith where it's weak? Paul clearly says no to one case. Circumcision is not just a matter of weaker versus stronger. Food is a matter of those things. In verses 1 through 9 that we looked at, Paul is making the case positively for the stronger faith, that you don't need circumcision. You've received the Spirit. That's all you need. It is the marker of the new covenant. It is the marker of the fact that you are possessed by God and in in the people of God, that you have full access to the inheritance of Abraham. That's all you need. You do not need circumcision. What he has not done is tell us why it is that circumcision expels you from the people of God. That is what he turns to now. So, let us go then and read chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What Paul is going to do in these verses is basically explain what he said in Galatians 2.18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. They have torn down the law as a way of justification. That is what that core confession of faith in 2.16 meant. The law is no longer an avenue, is never an avenue for justification before God. But how then do you prove yourself to be a transgressor? How do you prove yourself to be outside the step of the gospel and outside the truth of the gospel if you take this back on? So Paul is going to prove that here, and he starts by, by declaring that identity built on works requires doing the whole law. Identity built on works requires doing the whole law. He starts out by saying, for all who in the ESV rely upon the law. And if you go to a lot of more modern translations, the Holman, and it's not called Holman, but the Christian Standard Bible, the 2017 edition of that, the NIV, even the New Living Translation, the ESV here, they use the word rely. The word that that's actually translating is not a verb at all. 
It is a small preposition. And if you go back to more wooden translations like the King James or the New King James or the New American Standard, you'll find that there's no verb there. There isn't a reliance upon the law. This little word in Greek is translated a whole bunch of different ways. It sometimes has the meaning of from, by, of, or through. You can find it used all of these ways even in the book of Galatians. Okay? So it, it is a preposition that carries a lot of weight. But for a most time, unless it's talking about direction, it implies something about identity. It implies something of, of who you are, where you get yourself from. We see this already in the book of Galatians. So if you go back to Galatians 2.12, the ESV translates um, 2.12 this way. For before certain men came from James, he was, that is Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came back, uh, when they came, excuse me, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, a wooden translation of that would be fearing those of the circumcision party, and that word of being used here would be that little preposition, okay? And you'll notice what the ESV does there. Instead of saying those of the circumcision party, it realizes that that little preposition is just saying this is who they are. They are people who belong to the circumcision party. They are the circumcision party. And so they just get rid of it altogether. They also get rid of it altogether in 2.15, where he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That is not of Gentile sinners. That's their identity. They're not of Gentile sinners. So in 3.10, when he says all who rely on works of the law, that is all who are of works of the law. If your identity is built on doing works of the law, then you are under a curse. It makes really good sense that it's about identity too. The whole purpose of this is not justification as we will talk about here in just a moment. But it is about how you are assured of your identity as the people of God. And he says, if, if your identity then is going to be built on works of the law, you will always fall under a curse because it is written. And now Paul comes to quote the Old Testament, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. This quote is taken from Deuteronomy 27, 26. Its placement in Deuteronomy needs some explanation. And its importance to the book of Deuteronomy needs explanation. Because throughout here, it's going to seem like Paul is just grabbing any single scripture that helps his cause. But that is not what Paul is doing, and it's almost never what Paul does. He picks this not just because it says you are cursed if you don't abide by all of the things in the law, but he's doing it because of its placement in the book of Deuteronomy as well. So the book of Deuteronomy, again, as we've come back to it time and time again, it's a very important book, has two basic arcs to it. One arc through the first couple of chapters and the last couple of chapters is about the very nature of God's promises coming true. God has made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, which include many, many descendants, as many as the stars of the sky sky and sea, uh, sand on the seashore. That promise has come true. He has promised them also the land. And Moses is telling them, listen, God's promise will be true. He will give you the land. This is yours for the taking. He is on the outskirts of the land. They are going to go in with Joshua. You will win the land. The inner part of the book of Deuteronomy, as explained in 1.5, is that Moses undertakes to explain the law. That is, he is trying to explain the meaning of it and the application of it. So the meat of the book of Deuteronomy, all of the center part of Deuteronomy, is him explaining and applying the law to various scenarios. That explanation ends in chapter 26. In chapter 27, 
he begins to explain how you fail the law. And he begins by telling them that they're going to set up stones on Mount Ebal when they cross over. And after they set up those stones, they're going to have these curses placed in front of them. And you are cursed if you do this. You are cursed if you do that. And this particular curse, directly before chapter 28, which explains what the blessings and the curses actually are, this particular curse is the last one. It summarizes all of the curses up to that point. It summarizes how you can be cursed. And the reason why it's so terribly important is because this fulfills all of them. You are cursed, not if you don't do some of the law. You're not cursed if you fail in multiple areas, multiple categories, but you are failing the law. You are cursed if you don't do all the things of the law and do them. So you have to abide in all of them and you have to do them. So when we come up to how Paul is using it, it's clear that one, it's based on faith and not doing, right? So Paul's understanding of what faith means is that it's not, the law cannot be mixed with the faith because it's not based on faith, it's based on doing. You are to do them. He helpfully explains what abiding means. What does it mean to remain in the law? What does it mean to abide in the law? It doesn't mean that you like the law. It doesn't mean that you have a warm heart for the law. It doesn't mean that you agree with the law. It doesn't mean that you believe the law. It means simply that you do the things the law requires. This is the very function of laws in our society. You don't have to believe as a murderer that you've done right or wrong. If you murder somebody, you go to jail. Whether you believe in that law, whether you believe in its rightness has no bearing on the matter. Did you kill that man? Yes, you will go into jail. In Alabama, it is illegal to wear a fake mustache that causes laughter in church. You don't have to like the law. If a judge is doing his job, and that is the law that is written, he will sentence you, right? After he laughs at you for wearing a fake mustache in court. In Arizona, you can't allow your donkey to sleep, and you've heard these laws before. You can't allow a donkey to sleep in a bathtub in Arizona, just words for the wise if you're passing through. So you can think that these laws are stupid, and you can think that they're foolish, and you can think that there's no reason why anyone should abide by them, but that's the point. You don't need to believe in them. They are laws. You follow laws, not by believing in them, not by liking them, not by accepting them, but by doing them. That is the point of even God's law. To be acceptable under the law means to do the law. And secondly, to do the whole law, not to do part of it. You don't find the most important bits and say, I'm going to do these and I'm not going to do this. The law cannot be fragmented. It's, it's a light switch. It's on or it's off. It's not analog. It's digital. It's like being pregnant. You're not a little pregnant, right? We can say that she's much with child, but that only means that she's got a lot of child, right? It, it doesn't mean that she's more pregnant than anyone else. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. You can't say, I, I might do this, but I don't do that, and so I'm okay with the law. I, I might cheat on my taxes, but I don't cheat on my wife. Or I might dabble in a little bit of idolatry, but I don't murder and think that you're going to be okay before God. You not only have to do the law, but you have to do the entirety of the law. You have to do all of the law. It doesn't do to say, I'm only going to cover a bit of this. Paul makes it very, very clear by quoting from Deuteronomy, the law is not fragmented. You don't get to keep 55% of it, 82% of it. You either keep all of it or you fail. 
Now, frankly, what's interesting to me is one of the best places to understand this doesn't come from Paul, and it doesn't come from Deuteronomy. It comes from what a lot of people think is the antithesis of Paul in the book of James. And James explains exactly why you cannot fragment the law. In James 2, James says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty for all of it. For he who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Notice what he says is the reason why. It's because the same God who said you are not to commit adultery also said you are not to murder. The issue isn't the individual law. The issue is the God who ordered the law. If you transgress the law, you have transgressed God. And because God is one, you've transgressed the law. You've transgressed his law. And so you can't just do part of it. You have to keep all of it. Identity built on works requires doing the whole law. But, number two, identity built on faith in Christ is the alternative to this. It is the only alternative, we might want to say, but it is the alternative to this. Now, when you read through verse 11, it doesn't seem like that's very clear, but we're going to change how verse 11 sounds here in just a second. There are several problems with the way that almost every, I say almost every, single major translation handles this verse. So when you read it, it sounds like, Paul is proving, as I've said, he's never doing in the book of Galatians, justification by faith, right? So he says, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. There are a handful of problems with this. One, he sounds like he's trying to prove that you can't be justified by the law by quoting something that says the righteous shall live by faith, which on a logical level makes no sense. Number two, the writing in Habakkuk says nothing about keeping the law. And he says nothing negative about keeping the law or positive about keeping the law. Habakkuk says nothing about it. And so three, most scholars come to this saying, Paul seems to be playing really fast and really loose with the Old Testament. What it seems like Paul is doing is just looking in his concordance for anything that says faith and righteous in the same thing. And he went to Strong's and he looked over and he said, oh, it's Habakkuk. And so he just kind of plopped it in there and he said, this is good. This is exactly what I need. Thanks, Habakkuk. Habakkuk, however you want to say it. So he's really happy to have it, but it doesn't make any sense in context. Now, those scholars are right and those scholars are wrong. The way that it's written, the quote from Habakkuk has to carry all kinds of weight. The quote from Habakkuk, the way it's written, has to be an absolute lock sure proof that you cannot be justified by the law because the righteous live by faith. And they are right. It cannot carry that weight. But there is another way to read this, and it's those three little words, it is evident, that are the problem. Those three little words make up one word in the Greek, and that one word comes directly in between the two clauses. On the one hand, he is talking about no one being justified, and on the other hand, he's saying the righteous shall live by faith. That it is evident can come directly in between them, and so it can be read with either clause. So the best reading available for this, and I am not alone in saying this, it just doesn't make it into the translations, The best way to read this is this. Because in the law, no one is justified before God, it is evident that the righteous shall live by faith. You have that on your sermon handout, this little line. Because in the law, no one is justified before God. We said Paul simply assumes that. 
that is precisely what he said in 2.16. What does he say in 2.16? We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, he's talking to Peter, and he's talking to Peter, who is standing in a conflicting relationship with him. This is common ground. And this is common ground from the agitators. This is common ground for the Galatians. This is common ground for everyone who calls themselves a Christian, that Christ and faith in Christ justify you, not works of the law. And so when we come back to verse 11, Paul is assuming that as common ground. He says, This, because in the law no one is justified before God, it is evident that the righteous shall live by faith. So he assumes that common ground. He says, because you can't be justified in the law, the righteous have to live by faith. And he quotes Habakkuk in that. So if you were to turn back to Habakkuk, we'll set this text in context and try and explain what this quote means in Habakkuk. Habakkuk has a bit of a problem. You see, Habakkuk looks out on Judah and he notices that Judah is filled with wickedness. Israel has already been exiled and Judah is the lone remaining kingdom of God and he is lamenting in the beginning of his letter. He is lamenting the wickedness that is pervasive in Israel. He notices that they are both violent and that they have no cause for justice. They don't like justice. The wicked are all over the place. And so he says in 1.4, sort of the pinnacle of his complaint to open his book in 1.4, this is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. The wicked restrict the righteous and therefore justice comes out perverted. Now, what he basically means by that is, listen, you want to know why the law is ineffective, God? Why can't the righteous gain traction? Why can't the righteous do what is good? Why can't we overpower those who are wicked? He says it's a problem of numbers. We are surrounded or we're restricted by them. Every step forward we take, the righteous make, the wicked make us take two steps back. The law is ineffective. It can't be put into practice unless we somehow have power and we don't have any. You need to step in and fix this problem. The problem is simply the fact that there's too many wicked people in Israel. God says that he will fix the problem, but not how Habakkuk thinks. Verse 5, look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I'm rising up the Chaldeans, that bitter impestuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces and seizes territory not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings, and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. You think people in Israel are violent, and you think they don't care about justice? May I introduce to you the Chaldeans, who know violence beyond the violence that you could even imagine, and who own Thoughts of justice stem from themselves. They don't even get lip service to the fact that I am the just God and I am bringing them to you, 
Habakkuk. They will crush you. They are an unstoppable force. If you think that the wicked in your land couldn't be stopped, well, again, here come the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk doesn't understand a lick of why God is doing this. And if you want to read a very faithful response that still questions God, Habakkuk's response is the best. He, he, he notes that God is the living God and that, that he can do whatever he wants to, but he respectfully says, I, I don't understand. I don't understand why you would do this. After all, this seems to only make Habakkuk's problem worse if righteousness couldn't get a groundhold when simply the wicked of Israel were there, the wicked of Judah were there. What chance is justice going to have against the Chaldeans? God answers him as he says, I will wait for your response. He answers him in 2, 2 through 4, and this is where Paul quotes from. The Lord answered me, write down this vision. This is a vision that is to come. Clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and it will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it. Since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. That is Babylon, the Chaldean. His ego is inflated. He is without integrity. But the righteous will live by his faith. He says, I'm going to give you a vision of what's going to happen, and you want to write it down. You want to make it widely known. And that vision is the rest of the book of Habakkuk minus his response at the end. And that is that the Chaldeans will not get away with it. While he will use the Chaldeans to chastise his people, the Lord himself will come and chastise the Chaldeans. They will suffer for what they are going to do in their hubris to God's own people. They will be made right before God. God will not let this vengeance stand. He will bring his own power to bear on the circumstance. Notice what he says to Habakkuk. The righteous, those who who can't get a foothold because of the wicked, do not live before God and will not live before God because of what they can do. His whole problem is we can't do anything about the wickedness. And he says, let me increase it so that you will know for certain that you can't do anything about the wickedness in the world. You, you can't stop it, but I can and I will. He says, the one who is righteous doesn't live because he is able to overcome evil on his own. Even, Paul would say, his own evil. The righteous lives because I've told him that I will do it. This is the whole point of bringing Christ and having faith in Christ. It is the wild assumption that we can't live before God on our own. This is the most basic confession of Christianity. We are never going to be justified by the things that we do. So what do we do? We throw ourselves upon the mercy of God and specifically his mercy in Christ. This is the only alternative to people who know that they can never be justified by the things that they do before God. Habakkuk finds that out in a different context and in a different way, but it's made all the clearer to him. You cannot overcome the evil in this world. And what's more, Paul says, you can't overcome the evil that's in yourself. The righteous will live on the very picture that God gives to them. They will live on his word alone. His word is nothing more than Jesus Christ come in the flesh. This is Paul's point throughout the whole of Galatians precisely. 
we are incapable of keeping the law. You'll notice what he says in the beginning of Habakkuk. We will come back to this in time. The law is ineffective. The law is not powerful enough to overcome these people. If they don't do the law, wickedness reigns. Paul will say, yes, that's part of the problem. It's part of the problem for you individually, and it's part of the problem for society as a whole. The righteous are incapable. They can do nothing because we are incapable of keeping the law. Our sinful nature follows us everywhere. It surrounds us. It restricts us so that even our best efforts are perverted. The law is paralyzed to help us, but the righteous will live by faith. It doesn't mean that you live in sort of a pattern of life. This is the way in which you live. This is the way in which you walk before God. That's not what he means. He means you will have life everlasting. You will have eternal life, what scholars like to call eschatological life. You will be granted that only through faith, Habakkuk. Third, therefore, works identity is incompatible with faith identity. While the righteous can do nothing, doing, practice, accomplishment is the very basis of the law. Notice what it says here. The law is not of faith. What he says in verse 12, but the law is not of faith. That's that little Greek preposition again. It's not identified with faith. The two don't overlap. They're not only incompatible, they're in completely different spheres of reality. If you think that you can make and marshal your own identity by the works that you do, you cannot possibly think that you are making it your identity because you believe in Jesus Christ. The work of the law is not from faith. It's not of faith. It's not through faith. It is not associated with faith in any way. They are totally different worlds. So again, then, he quotes Leviticus 18.5. And Leviticus here reaffirms the nature of the law, but notice it does it in such a way that it compares directly to the quote from Habakkuk. The quote from Habakkuk was, the righteous shall live by faith, but who is righteous before God? How do you live before God in the law? The one who does them shall live by them. It is only by doing the law, not by believing, not by trusting, not by accepting, not by acknowledging. None of that helps. It is only by doing the law that you are actually able to live the very thing that you cannot do. The two do not work together. They are oil and water. They will never be missable. This very reason is why It is not like the issue of meat in Corinth. It's not up to those who are weaker in faith and stronger in faith. It is either you have faith or you don't have faith. You can't use works to bolster your faith. Paul says you guys are making category errors all over the place. The works of the law have nothing to do with your faith in Christ. You are either building your identity off of works or you are building it off of faith. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.8. When he's talking about food, And he's talking about this division as we've already read. He says, food will not commend us to God. That's why it's not an issue. Your standing before God is not on the basis of whether you eat a steak or whether you let it pass. But this issue is how we commend ourselves to God. Do you commend yourself to God because you stand on the faith of believing in Jesus Christ, or do you commend yourself to God because you bear the marks of an identity, because you've done something, because of your accomplishment, whether it's in the law or it's just something random that you made up that you think is enough to get you saved? 
If you are bearing the marks in your own body or you are carrying your own deeds forward to God, that is how you are commending yourself. Paul says, man, you are a failure. You will never stand before God like that. It is only one who is commended to God through faith in Christ that will be for your salvation. And that is because, in verses 13 and 14, Christ supplants the law. He supplants the law. The law is no longer in effect because Christ has come. We won't have time to do justice to these two verses today. Although the rest of Galatians will hint at these verses and we will talk about them, we will refer to them many, many times. It is clear that what Christ is doing here is exactly what God does for his people. God will bring judgment upon the Chaldeans that his people could never do. He will bring judgment upon the the wicked that the righteous could never bring because they weren't strong enough to. And so Jesus does for us what we could not do. And he becomes a curse of the law. He takes on the curse of the law for us. To understand what exactly that means and why it's important, we need to understand something about what it meant before Christ to become a Jew and to become part of the people of God. So you were a pagan in the third century BC and you realized that Jewish life was the only life to live, that their God was the God in all the world. You were convinced by arguments. You met a nice Jew on the road and he talked to you about how his God was the one true and living God. And you bought into that. How would you then become a child of that God? How would you become associated with them? Well, you would declare and confess that you believed in the Jewish God, you believed in Yahweh, and you would go under the law. There's nothing else for it. That's what you would have to do. And if you were a man, that would mean that you would have to be circumcised. There are two problems with that. One, you would still need to believe that God would come and save you from your sin because you would know immediately that you couldn't keep that law. The weight of the law would still bear upon you. And if there was not salvation coming for you, if there was not grace from God flowing out to you, you would never be able to bear the weight of that law. This is why even David said, blessed is the one in whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He knew the blessing didn't just come from being under the law, but the blessing came from being under the law, but not being held accountable to it. So you would be in faith waiting for one to come. But now that that one has come, listen to what Paul says in verse 14. You're not entering into Abraham's promises through the law, but he says, so that in, not the law, but so that in Jesus Christ, Christ pairs bears your penalty. Christ takes on the curse for you so that you, coming into the law, don't have to enter into and under the punishment of the law so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So Gentiles now don't need to enter into the law. That's the whole purpose of Christ's coming, that you don't have to bear the weight and the guilt of the law. Gentiles are sinners. Quite apart from the law, they were condemned in Adam long before. There was no redemption for them. But you don't need to take on the law to be redeemed and enter into the promises of Abraham anymore. Christ has come. Don't return to the law. He supplants the law. Jesus becomes what the law could never be. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. He is the rightful end of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. He was everything that the law was pointing to. And he sums it up and he absorbs all of it. He takes it in himself. The law was the gateway to the blessings of Abraham. And now that gateway is nothing less than faith in Christ. Even as Deuteronomy 27, 26 said, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of law to do them. Listen to how John quotes Jesus as talking about abiding not in the law, but abiding now in him. I am the true vine, he says in John 15, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Man, that sounds an awful lot like what we just got done talking about in Habakkuk. You can do nothing apart from God doing it for you. Jesus says, if you abide in me and not the law, you can do nothing without me. But, but, he goes on to say, anyone who does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers and branches are gathered the thrown into the fire and burn. So if you don't abide in me, you can do nothing. You're nothing but burn wood. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He says, you no longer need to abide in the law. You abide in me. He supplants the law in every way. You do not need the law. You do not need works to be acceptable to God. You need one thing. You need Christ. You are to place your trust, your hope. Every egg is going into that basket. Do not trust yourself to your own works. You will fail, friend. You cannot keep all of the law. You cannot do what is right before God enough to earn merit and favor before him. Don't trust yourself to your own works. Rather, entrust yourself to one who has already been proven faithful. He's been proven faithful. Whose righteous faith was made evident to all because God not only cursed him on the tree, but then he raised him from the dead. It has already been declared that he is true and faithful. And that in him, God has already vindicated those who place their faith in him by raising him from the dead. And trust yourself to that one, for he is an anchor, and he has proven that he will hold through the most difficult of storms. Christ is unmovable in his commitment. He is faithful in his love. 
He is tender in his mercy, and he is more sure than the ground beneath your feet. Entrust yourself to him and him alone, for he is a solid rock, unshakable in the storm, and there is nothing else for you to stand on but sinking sand. Let us pray. My Father, you are good and wise and powerful. Your law teaches, amongst many other things, that we are totally incapable, because of the sin in our lives, to do what is right before you. And left to our own devices, we would be cut off forever from you. For we do not love you as we ought. We do not follow your commandments as we ought. We are selfish, prideful, and arrogant. But you have not seen fit to leave us there. By the provision of Jesus Christ, the provision of your spirit, you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you. The penalty that we deserved, Christ has taken. The door that was shut that we ourselves had to overcome, Christ has opened for us through his own body hung on a cross. So we come to you, Father, not with works in our hands, not with our deeds, not with any indication of our own greatness. We come to you wholly commending ourselves to you because of the blood of Jesus Christ. May this be the confession of Crossway Christian Church and those who perhaps today have never heard it, let this be the confession on their lips as well. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. We pray that you are glorified by your people and their dependence upon you today. We ask this, so that Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, might be glorified forever and ever. Amen.